Good morning. We're in lesson six in our study of our Lord's letter to the seven churches, and we are focusing on the church at Pergamum, which I call Satan's city in uh, Revelation chapter two, verses 12 through 17. Now, I have a little slideshow for you this morning. Uh, the Internet is p- pretty filled with uh, pictures of, uh, of Pergamum, so uh, we'll just run some of those up. You can see Pergamum is uh, the uh, farthest to the top uh, on your page of the seven churches of Asia. You'll notice it is not a port city. It's an inland city, roughly 18 miles uh, inland uh, on the Caicos River. I think if you had a small boat, you might be able to make it to the sea from uh, from Pergamum. Let's look at the next slide. Thanks to Google Earth. That is not the sea behind the, the hill, which is somewhere around 1,300 feet in height. And we'll see more closely some of the ruins on the top. But that's a lake, and you can see a dam. And I'm not certain whether that's the Caicos River coming from that. But the Caicos River then flows through the valley and out to the sea. 18 miles apart. Let's look a little more closely, thanks to Google Earth, and you can see some of the ruins uh, a little more carefully. Let's look now at our next shot. That's a a distant shot. (laughs) and Some of you will think I did this because of the wrecking yard that is right in front of the screen. (laughs) I didn't really choose that, but there it is. And there's the, the Acropolis or the hill. And then the next scene you'll see uh, begin to see uh, some of the ancient ruins, the uh, theater that's there, and the citadel up on the left, and so on. And, and notice the city now uh, of Bergama is the modern city is down in the valley, and the ancient city was more up on the uh, on the top of the hill because it was a fortification. Okay, next shot. You can see. This uh, just gives you a sense of the citadel and the and Trajan's temple, the theater, the altar to Zeus, temple to, temple to Dionysius, and those are just among some of the ruins that are there. Okay, next shot. Here's the uh, a little different picture of uh, the theater. There were several theaters there. The this one I think would hold about fifteen thousand people. Next shot. That's just another look. But now you see the view and see the city on beyond. Okay, next. This is Trajan's uh, temple, the, uh, or at least what's left of it. Next. And this is the, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to try and, and pronounce that, the uh, Asclepium. And this was a healing center. Uh, apparently blindness was, was the major uh, thing that was uh, healed, but it was in, in association with uh, the worship of a Roman god, and there were people who came, and the medical, it was sort of a medical center uh, for that part of the world at that period of time. Next. And this is a, uh, a temple for an Egyptian uh, deity that uh, was worshipped there as well. All of that, I think, gives you a sense uh, of the fact that this is a city that had many gods and a great deal of worship that uh, took place there. Okay, let's talk about the city of Pergamum. Um, You can see from the pictures that it was a a center for worship, for medicine, for culture. It was a place where they stored some of the wealth and the riches that would be uh, captured uh, during a war. 
It apparently had about 200,000 people at the time that uh, this uh, letter to them would have been written. It was on a major thoroughfare uh, that would go on south down to uh, Ephesus. So although it wasn't on the sea, it was a major uh, center of, of commerce. Five theaters, uh, many temples, and, and much going on. A library that contained 200,000 volumes. Um, so there was much. That is until Anthony gave it to Cleopatra and they hauled it all off somewhere else. But it was uh, one of the great cities. It was the capital of Asia and certainly uh, a major formidable city. None of those things are said in our text. And, and uh, what we are told is this is the place where Satan dwells. And then it is called Satan's throne. So I, that's why I call it Satan's city. I'm not sure what that meant. I guess you could say with all of the immorality and all the false religion, it would certainly be a place that Satan would feel comfortable living. But I can't tell you what it was that caused it to be that. It is very interesting, though, isn't it, to think about the fact that while Satan is, certainly has his ministries everywhere, there are certain places that he seems to be more powerful, more influential, and this apparently was one of those places. Satan City. I said in my notes, he has the home field advantage. You could have felt it, I think, in the church. Had you gone from one of those seven churches to another, I think you would have sensed something of the satanic influence and activity that took place there in that city. The speaker is described, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ, and he is described as the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. You remember that in Revelation chapter 1, it is said that it is out of his mouth that this sharp, two-edged sword proceeds. Um, and, and then when you look, for instance, in this text in Deuteronomy 32, uh, 40 and 41, there is a description of the power of our Lord and his judgment upon his enemies, which we would assume generally would be the enemies of Israel. I have to giggle to myself because in that text it talks about the long-haired enemies. <laughs> I didn't write that, folks. It just says it. <laughs> but I thought it was kind of interesting that somehow Moses wanted to make a point of that too for whatever reason. Anyway, uh, when we come to Revelation chapter 19, what you will find there is a description again of the sword. Look at verse 15 in Revelation 19. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And down in verse 21 of Revelation 19. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. I say that because I think many of us, when we come to this text, we come to it in the light of, he, of, of Hebrews chapter 4. The word of God is quick and so on. It's like a sword and it divides between soul and spirit and whatever. That text is a text which really is talking about the word of God 
and specific, more particularly of the word of God in the life of the believer. It seems to me that where we find it here in Revelation and in Deuteronomy, it's the sword of the judgment of our Lord upon his enemies. And I think that's, that's a significant observation when we come to the warnings that will, that will flow out of this. All right. The saints at Pergamum. It says uh, in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. Now, I want you, in almost all the translations, it emphasizes the holding fast. It's a strong and it's an emphatic word. It's not one for one who casually holds to something, but rather one who clings to something as absolutely true and, and crucial. And he says, you have not denied, uh, and that's where the interesting part comes. Some would say, you have not denied your faith in me. The text literally reads, you have not denied my faith. That's the way it reads, literally, my faith. Now, if you look in the same verse at the description of Antipas, it's describing him as my faithful witness. Now, I'm not, I'm not really trying to make a, a huge point of this. I, I'm just... I have a fetish about taking the text in its most literal sense. And it seems to me that what he is saying is, you have not denied my faithfulness. And therefore, it is talking about your trust in the faithfulness and reliability of God and his trustworthiness. So in the same verse, you then have Antipas, who is described as one who is faithful. By the way, that is a legitimate use. I'm not just inventing a new lexical use for the word. It's not the most common use. But it seems to me that when one is facing opposition and persecution and other things, the real question is, how reliable is God? Now, is that not the issue that we find in the Garden of Eden? Isn't Satan raising questions about whether God is really worthy to be believed and to be followed? Is he really speaking truth? Is he faithful when he says the day of you, when you eat it, you will surely die. So anyway, my, my, my understanding of that is they have not renounced their trust in his faithfulness. And now he goes back to an event which I take it to be in the past. I think that's pretty clearly uh, indicated. And so while there is, you know, in, uh, in Smyrna, there is the coming uh, imprisonment and death that is spoken of. In Pergamum, it's spoken of as that which is past. So here was some kind of opposition that has come along, and Antipas is looked upon as that faithful uh, witness who has died. Now, I'm going to be picky again about the way you read this. Uh, I think in the New American Standard, it will say, who was killed among you. Other translations say, killed in your city I don't think I don't think I think among you is 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 a good tight literal rendering but I think among you means literally that in other words 
I think that it wasn't just some Christian who died in that city. I think that he has been picked out and he has been martyred before these very believers. In other words, they are standing there witnessing his martyr. Now, if you want to wage psychological warfare on, on somebody in terms of their denying the faith, that works, folks. Let them see other saints die for their faith. And you're going to be, you're, you're going to underscore the fact this is serious business. And what he is saying, as I understand it is, not only was Antipas faithful, but he was among you and you have stood firm and continue to stand firm in the midst of that. And so he is clinging, uh, he was clinging to the name of our Lord Jesus. Now let's look at the grievances that our Lord has with the church in Pergamum in verses 14 and 15. I'm gonna, I, I put in your notes, I, I, italicized and underlined the word have. It seems to me that it's one thing to say there are people there, uh, who hold to the teaching of Balaam and to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. He says, you have people there. And if I understand what he is trying to say, there are two really important things that I think we need to see. Number one, it's essentially the same word that was rendered hold fast, that was a word of commendation for those who were the saints at Pergamum. And yet, strangely to me, when you get to those who Hold to the teaching of Balaam, it's under, it's underrated. Why? Why not say consistently with the way the, the virtually the same word is used above? Why not say you have some there who hold fast to the teaching of Balaam? Who hold fast to the teaching of the Nicolaitans? Now, add that to the observation that the word have is really laying some culpability on the church. I mean, after all, why is it that our Lord is speaking strong words of rebuke to the church about this issue if they don't have some culpability for it going on? Here's the way I read it. I understand that in that church there are those who have been misled and deceived. Some into this teaching of Balaam, would we not all agree, it wasn't really Balaam teaching. It was Balaam-like teaching. So there was some kind of teaching that was similar to the teaching of Balaam. By the way, Balaam was a prophet, not a teacher. He didn't have a pulpit or a podium or a lectern or whatever. He just gave bad advice, uh, sinful advice to Balak as to how to deal with the Israelites when he couldn't bring a curse upon them. So there are those there that somehow have been deceived and embraced false teaching and closely related to that false living, that is, immorality, impurity that has gone on. I take it that that has been addressed and that these people are holding firmly, just like the, the, the saints are holding firmly in the midst of the opposition that comes from Satan and unbelievers, I think these people in the church are holding firmly to their error and their practice in spite of the rebuke and opposition they've gotten from the church. And when he says, you have them there, I think the question is, 
why are they still there? Why do you have them in your congregation knowing what they hold and what they do? I mean, does it make any sense to you? Now, we know from others, and when we get down to uh, Thyatira, we know that the problem in the church is the toleration of evil. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the church has somehow embraced a man who is living with his father's wife. There is the problem in the church of looking the other way when sin is going on. That's what I understand is taking place here. That's why our Lord is rebuking the church and saying, you have there those who are doing this. Now, I don't want to get in deeply to the issue of Balaam, but you remember in Numbers, uh, Balak wants to hire Balaam to pronounce a curse on the Israelites, and every time Balaam opens his mouth... He speaks a word of blessing because it's impossible for him to curse those whom God has blessed. So that when you get to the end of chapter 24, it's like Balak saying, I'm taking my money, I'm going home, I've had enough of your cursings, I can't stand any more of them. And it looks like he's packing up and all of a sudden in Numbers 25, we see these Moabite women who are being brought into the camp of Israel. And you remember, that's where the, the, the dramatic action comes, where uh, um, uh, the, uh, the Moses directs uh, the Israelite leaders to come and to deal harshly. And you remember, the one runs his spear through the, the one couple and so on. Very dramatic uh, instance. What is interesting is that he focuses on two things, eating food, sacrifice to idols, and immorality. What book of the New Testament comes to your mind when you read those two things? Acts, for one, because Acts chapter 15, that was clearly addressed in terms of the Jerusalem Council. And in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the question is, can we eat meats sacrificed to idols? And the fancy theological uh, argument is idols represent gods. There are no other gods, so idols don't mean a thing. Therefore, I can go and I can participate in idol worship and I can especially eat their ribeye steak. And it doesn't mean a thing. But the problem is that attached to that was a drunkenness, disorderliness, and, and immorality. Remember, for instance, when the Israelites in Exodus 32, while Moses is on the mountain and, and Aaron comes up with the golden calf, they rose up to eat, to drink, and to play. Well, there you are, folks. It starts early. That's what pagan worship is about. And certainly they would have seen their share of that in, in uh, Pergamum. So it seems to me that what's going on is people are being enticed to engage in these extracurricular activities as though it's all right. But I have to tell you, immorality is the gateway to theological impurity. And theological impurity is the gateway to immorality. It works both ways. But it seems to me that that's what he is saying here. Some are clinging to this, and you have them there in the church. Then he says also, you also have 
those holding firmly to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Uh, here's one of those places again where I, I, I guess I have my fetishes, but I, I watch people trying to come up with all kinds of explanations for who the Nicolaitans were and what they believed. Here's what we know from the Bible. We know from Revelation chapter 2 and verse 6 that those in the church at Ephesus hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I, God says, our Lord says, also hate. So what we know about the Nicolaitans from chapter 2 verse 6 is they do bad things. The teaching of the Nicolaitans leads to bad practice. And not only do the Ephesians hate it, but our Lord Jesus hates it too. That, that just says bad conduct to me. That's what we know. We don't know the specifics of their doctrine. We do know <coughs> that it is similar in some way to the Balaam stuff. And I say that because it says in the same way or in almost all the translations, it, it, it is very clear that there is something that is very similar between the error that the Balaam followers have and the error that the Nicolaitans have in the same way. And the practices, of course, uh, we would say would be similar. Here's the interesting thing. We don't know much at all except this. And, and, and here we really need to look carefully at what we are told. We're told that the reward will be hidden manna and a name which nobody else knows. And, and what we are told here is that this error is an error which we don't really know about. And I think it's deliberately left open-ended because if it isn't the error of the Nicolaitans, it's going to be the error of somebody else. But one of the ways in which you detect it is by looking at what it produces in the lives of those who embrace it. So it seems to me that what we have here is an error that is Balaam-like and is producing uh, immorality and debauchery within the church. And certainly that is consistent with what we would expect in Pergamum itself. Now, the Lord's call to repentance in verse 16. Now, let me see the next slide, if I can, and see if I've got this right. Yes. Oh, I love Windows 7 and that snip feature, because then I can go in and do all these things and capture it like that. The red, folks, the red is the singulars. Everything that, that's there in red is singular. So, for instance, when he says, repent, therefore, second person, singular, imperative. Which, to me, is very interesting. Yet, you have singular. Now, he's speaking, I, I suspect, he's speaking to the church as one entity. The church, singular. While the other churches are certainly to listen and to learn. That light, uh, which was blue, <laughs> whatever it is now, gray stuff. That's the only plurals in that text. Now, I say to you, it seems to me that that is something that is uh, a, a, an observation that we need to keep in our heads as we look at what things are being said. So, who is it that is to repent? It's the you singular. That's the church. 
So he's not calling upon those who are clinging to the teachings of Balaam or the teachings of the Nicolaitans. He is calling on the church to repent. For what? I would say for having those among them who embrace this error. Now, when it talks about those who will be punished, who is that? Plural. In other words, when the Lord comes, he is going to come to the church, he says. I'll come to you quickly, but I am going to deal with them with the sword of my mouth. Now, here's where the sword of his mouth and, and, and this whole uh, imagery of the double-edged sword. In Revelation, as in Deuteronomy, it's talking about the instrument of our Lord's judgment on unbelieving enemies. So I think what he's saying to the church is, I'm coming to you, the church, and I'm coming in judgment on them, not discipline, not like Hebrews 12, not discipline. I'm coming in judgment because there are unbelievers in the church who are undermining the, the doctrinal purity and morality of the church. I'm coming and I'm going to deal with them. Repent. Second person, singular. I will come to you. Singular, I will fight against them. And actually, one of the texts says, I will wage war. That's what he's going to do. He's coming not to correct them. And he doesn't call on them to repent. That's interesting to me. He calls on the church to repent for failing to deal with them, I believe, as they should have done. And then I raise this question. Why is the specific manifestation of repentance not specified? In other words, he calls on the church to repent, but what he doesn't say is, here's how you do it. Here's what repentance looks like. I'm going to save that, keep you in suspense for just a moment and see what our Lord says to the overcomer in verse 17. What does overcoming look like in Pergamum? In uh, Smyrna, overcoming means persevering and enduring in the face of prison and in the face of death. By the way, I got an email I read this morning from a friend who was saying that uh, some uh, North Korean believers had just been tried and just been, I think, sentenced to 13 years in prison for their association with the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Not hypothetical in our world. But what overcoming looks like in Pergamum, I believe, is to not only remain faithful to the faith, but to maintain purity in the church. The church is to guard the purity of doctrine and the purity of conduct from those in the church who would lead it uh, some other way. What is the overcomer promised? Now, this is, this is fascinating to me. And again, here's where some of the scholars go off on their bunny trails of trying to tell us from secular data what all this means, the hidden manna and the white stone. Folks, I don't have a clue what that means. And I'll add, saints over the centuries had no clue either. Now, either this is something that only the scholars have come to and the rest of us are left in the dark, or the reality is nobody knows. I go with the nobody knows myself. 
But look what we do know. We do know that they will receive hidden manna and they will receive a name written on a white stone. They will receive a name that no one else knows. Now, what it, what is the common element in both of those nebulous descriptions of blessing? Let's just call it mystery. Can we? Mystery. Hidden manna. Hidden means you, you don't know where it is. It's a mystery, right? I mean, we know what manna is. We don't know what hidden manna is. And if it's a name that is written that only the recipient knows, then again, that's a mystery. Now, why would he say that here to these saints in Pergamum? I would say that throughout the history of the church, one of the most serious errors that has been perpetrated is we have this hidden inner knowledge. Either it's because our blessed teacher has revealed it to us, but nobody else knows it by a vision or however he's got us, got it, he or she has got it. But, but we have somehow this knowledge that the hoi polloi of Christians just don't have. Everybody wants to be a part of the inner circle of knowing something that other people don't know. I think, I think that a lot of these religions that practiced in Pergamum, as they have been practiced throughout all of the centuries, emphasize, here's something nobody else knows, but you, if you're now in the inner circles of this particular group. And I think what he's saying is this. You guys like mysteries? Hey, Forget these dudes who are coming along with their mystery stuff that nobody else knows when look what it produces. Their immorality is no mystery. Their doom is no mystery. Jesus Christ is coming to judge them as his unbelieving enemies. That's no mystery. You want a real mystery? Then trust me. And by the way, doesn't that help you with the book of Revelation and its mysteries? The reality is we're not going to understand all those mysteries until Jesus comes. But what we do know is whatever that mystery is, it is the world's finest mystery and it is held for believers in Jesus Christ. We will know what our name is. And I take it that that name is talking about a very individual future for us. That is, we're not just bunched and grouped into heaven, not even first class and second class seats in heaven. We, every one of us as believers, is dealt with in terms of our walk with Him and whatever. Now, we get there through faith in the Lord Jesus. But it seems to me that what it's saying is, God is going to deal with every one of His believers as an individual, and there will be something about them that is absolutely unique. We may all wear white robes, but there's going to be some uniqueness to the believer there in heaven. And what he's saying, therefore, is, here's the thing I promise you. I promise you a mystery that beats anything these guys have to offer. That's the way I see it. I don't know what the white stone is. I don't know a lot of that stuff. I do know that it is a mystery and that it is promised to those 
who are in Pergamum who remain true to the Lord Jesus. So what's the message in a nutshell? Well, it seems to me that Pergamum is a church that doesn't have the ideal location. <laughs> They're a church in, in the heart of Satan's turf. Much opposition there. At least one saint has been martyred there before, maybe others. Much persecution. But here is a church that has adhered to the truth and their faith and, and trust in the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus. But somehow within that church, there have arisen those who have embraced falsehood. And that falsehood has led to the denial of crucial doctrine and to the denial of pure, wholesome living. In other words, somehow the religion that's come their way is a religion that somehow has now sanctified, may I use that word, sanctified Pergamum's immorality. And now somehow you can engage in that. I think, my friends, that is exactly what has happened in Corinth. I believe that the issue that is raised there with meats offered to idols in chapter 8, I've gone through this with you before, that the question is in chapter 8, hey, if there are no idols, then does it really matter whether we go worship those idols or not? What Paul says in chapter 8 is, I'm willing to just leave the truth or falsehood of that alone, but ask one question. Will doing so benefit and edify your brother? If you participating in this causes your brother to stumble, it's wrong whether it's something doable or not. Chapter 9, he then goes and says, you guys need to learn to sacrifice things that you think are your rights. And he comes to the most legitimate right, and that was the right to be supported in his ministry. And he said, for the sake of the gospel, I've given that up. Chapter 10, he says, you know what? What we're seeing here is no different than what we've seen in ancient Israel. And that is lack of self-control. Your pursuit of fleshly indulgence, and that's really what eating meat sacrificed to idols is all about. It's about indulging yourself, eating, drinking, and being merry. And he says, that's what happened to the Israelites, and that's what caused their destruction. At the end of chapter 10, he says, and oh, by the way, you cannot eat at the table of our Lord and at the table of demons. You've got to take your pick. So all of a sudden, you say, well, there are no other gods. That's true. But there are demons. And demonic activity is behind this worship. And therefore, he says, you can't do it. That's consistent with Acts 15. You can't do it. I believe when you get to 1 Corinthians 11 and you start looking about those people who have come and indulged themselves and are drunken and disorderly and brought sickness and death into the church... I believe it's because they tried to bring Saturday night's idol worship into Sunday morning. I believe that they actually have already been influenced by this very Balaam-like thing. And that's why our Lord is so strong in his rebuke of them. So I see this church as a church that somehow has been become a safe haven for false teaching and those who... I would say cling to it. That's the sense in which I have. And who cling to the immorality that flows out of it. Second point, by way of application. There are some people who uh, like to think of themselves as New Testament saints. 
as though somehow the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and all that stuff is just irrelevant. Why do you think? Now, these are Gentiles, folks. These are gent as a rule. These are, are these not Gentile saints? And yet he talks to them about Balaam, and he's going to talk to them next about Jezebel. What does that suggest to you? It suggests to me that he expects his readers to know what he's talking about. He does not go into detail about Balaam. Why? Because they ought to be reading their Old Testament. And therefore, when he comes with Old Testament imagery, it ought to make sense to them. And they say, oh yeah, Balaam, I know. You know, it just comes back. Numbers 23 through 25, you know, all these other texts, it's there. The Old Testament is crucial to our understanding of the new. <clears throat> Satan's role in false teaching and immorality. He's the one who deceives the whole world, we're told in Revelation 12, verse 9. And remember in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're told about the doctrine of demons. And I would say this, Satan is a switch hitter. That is, he, he doesn't really care which side of the extreme that you go to. He really doesn't. So on the one hand, he'll peddle immorality. And, and that seems to be the name of the game at Pergamum. But what's he doing in 1 Timothy chapter 4? He's forbidding the eating of certain foods and marriage. See, so, so you have these two extremes. Marriage is bad. Eating certain foods is bad. And over here, sexual immorality is good. And eating to, to overindulgence is good. He doesn't care which way you go. Because the reality is, one extreme may lead you to the other by way of reaction. Satan is there, and one of his principal ways of working, and I believe in our culture, I believe it's through deceptive teaching. I think bad doctrine has got Satan's name all over it. And we live in a postmodern world, folks. We live in a postmodern world that says, well, that's your truth. I can see, can't you see those... Some postmodern people coming into the church at Pergamum and saying, yeah, yeah, you know, the, the doctrine of the substitution. That's your, that's your faith. That's fine for you. But we, we have this new enlightened faith. This is our truth. We've got that going on in our churches today. That kind of mindset that's frightening. So I call them strange bedfellows. Immorality and false doctrine. You know, I... I've seen it go both ways. I've seen people go for the intellectual trip into false doctrine, and not very long afterwards, they're plunging headlong into into something else. I remember distinctly in, in one of my more remote family members, basically this fellow had grown up uh, a believer, and he basically said, I don't think I believe that anymore, and if I don't, I'm not going to be married, I'm not going to live like Christians are supposed to. Why should I? Deny the truth, and then you can go anywhere you want. But the other side is just as true. And I've seen that so often in, in terms of immorality, and I know many of you have seen it. But let's say you have a, a friend that you've known for years, and, and either he or she, meaning his wife, decides that they have had their fill of, uh, of Christian living, the way the Scripture describes it, and they're going to go off their own way. And in fact, they've already done that, and they're now engaged in immorality. I can't tell you how many times when we've gone to people like that, first response is, you know what, you're absolutely right. This is sin, and I need to break it off. Hallelujah if they do. 
but so often they don't. And then they say, well, you know, there are actually other Christians that read those texts a little differently. And so maybe that's just your harsh, you know, cruel way of, of viewing it. And then, and I tell you, I've seen this, I've heard this. And then somebody says, in effect, I don't care what you do, I don't believe any of this stuff anyway. There's a way in which immorality just pulls the plug on good theology then and now. And that leads me to our obligation to those who are led astray. If the church is called to repentance, then it seems to me what this is saying is, if our Lord is going to come with that double-edged sword of judgment upon people that he is going to deal with as his unbelieving enemies... How should the church feel about those people who are literally headed headlong into their own spiritual destruction? Would you not say that the church ought to be greatly concerned and prompted into action to call these people not not to, to repentance in the sense of repenting as a believer would, but of coming to trust in Jesus and coming to faith in him? There ought to be something that is... Seriously done. I was thinking about that in terms of Matthew chapter 18. And the reason I say that is the the, the link with the word stumbling block. Balaam was one who had instructed or counseled Balak to bring stumbling blocks. And by the way, in the context, in Numbers, I think it's 31, verse 16, the stumbling block was Moabite women. All right, I'm going to go off the into the poll here for a minute. I think that in, in, in the book of Ruth, when uh, Naomi is counseling Ruth to crawl under the covers with Boaz, I think she is expecting her to act like a typical Moabite woman. That's not saying much for, for her, by the way, but then you know how I feel about that. But it's simply to say that there is the need for us to deal decisively with sin. And so when in Matthew 18, our Lord says, woe to that one who becomes a stumbling block to others. And then he goes on to say, if your eye causes you to stumble, better to pluck it out and to go into heaven one-eyed than to go into hell two-eyed. Do we really, do we really grasp, and by the way, that's the chapter about church discipline. Do we really grasp the significance and the importance of seeing how critical holding to sound faith and sound practice is? It seems to me that the church today is pretty soft where our Lord is speaking in pretty hard terms. Last comment on repentance. I'm sure there are times when repentance has a description. Remember when when uh, John the Baptist is baptizing and <laughs> some of those scribes, the Pharisees came and they were lining up for baptism and basically John the Baptist says, hit the road. I'm not baptizing you. Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. And then somebody asked him, he said, well, if you're a soldier, you don't extort money from people. If you have two coats, you give one of them to somebody you need. You know, and he, he starts telling about what it looks like. But it seems to me that in this case, I, at least I'm instructed when there is a call to repentance, but there's not a specific act that is required. I think it's because 
Our Lord wants us to ponder what real repentance is and what it would look like and that we come up with the application. And, and uh, so I've said in many instances where people say, well, how will we know what repentance looks like? A, a wife says, how will I know if my husband's repented? And I can say to her, you'll know it when you see it. You'll know it when you see it. But I want to be careful that I don't prescribe some list that he is to dutifully exercise or otherwise you don't know whether it's real or not. And I was thinking of those two examples, Judah. Judah's the one who suggests that he sell, that they sell their brother Joseph. And it's Judah who is the one through whom the messianic line is going to come. The staff, the ruling staff will not depart from his hands. And yet Joseph's the guy who's uh, doing the leading for the moment. But when Joseph has done his, his, his excellent work, Judah is the one who says to Joseph, not knowing who he is, look, our father loves this boy more than all of us put together. If we go back without him, his heart will be broken. Don't take him, take me. See, they had been in the jail saying, oh man, why did we do that? That wasn't repentance. <laughs> repentance is saying, I'm the one. I'm the one, take me. That's Judah. Zacchaeus. Remember, Jesus didn't say to him, now come down to that tree and, and by the way, all that income that you've made from your, uh, your, your illicit activities, uh, you gotta give it back. Zacchaeus says, Lord, you come to my house today, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pay back what I've taken from people unjustly. So I, I, I say to you, sometimes when you see a call to repentance and you don't see a specific act, don't look for a list. Ask yourself, what kind of heart is our Lord looking for? And how will that heart manifest itself so that other people can see it and know that God has done a work in our lives? I think that's what this may be about. The church at Pergamum, sin in the midst. They live in the city that belongs to Satan. But somehow Satan's found his way into the church. And they really haven't dealt with that as they should have. Father, thank you for this text. It may be that there are those of us who need to heed this message to the church in terms of our passivity in dealing with error that is in our midst. It may be that there are those here who are like the people of Pergamum. They're just up to their neck in sin and debauchery and immorality and error. That is the case. We pray that they might come to the point of acknowledging their sin and of seeing the Lord Jesus as the only solution through his sacrificial death in the sinner's place. We pray that they would come to trust in you. Help us to be faithful to these words. In Jesus' name, amen.